Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 5. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 through 6. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Blessed, holy, sweet, and good are the words of the Lord to us. Let's pray. Oh, Father, may we see, see on these pages of Your Holy Scripture through Your Apostle Paul what is there. Will you help us understand what we are to understand in a right way, in a correct way, in a God-glorifying way, in a gospel way, and protect from all deceptions on this issue. Do it to the eternal benefit of our souls and to the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Back in the book of Judges, I'm going to read something just for a moment. I want us to see something there. When Jephthah was called to lead Gilead in battle against Ephraim. And what I'm going to read, we're going to see that for many people, life and death depended on a test. It wasn't a test in order to become something that they weren't. It was a test that revealed what they were. It was a test that revealed that they were enemies. In Judges 12, battle's going on, and then I pick up in verse 5. And the Gileadites, this 
is the group, the people that Jephthah is leading. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan. It's like all the shallow places to cross the Jordan River and to go over and to get out of Ephraim. They captured it. So they're like, have the bridge, essentially, right? So they captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? And when he said, No! They said to him, Then say, Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. For he could not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. They had a different accent. The Ephraimites couldn't pronounce shh. And that told them, they're not of us. They could have done that with my wife moving from Texas to California. At the border, they could have asked her, are you a Californian? And she could have lied and said, yes. And they would have said, say oil. And she would have said, all. That's what's happening here. See, the inability to pronounce shibboleth, that didn't make them non-Gileadites. It didn't make them the enemy. It revealed that they were not Gileadites. It revealed that they were the enemy. And the Apostle Paul, in Ephesians 5, lays out a shibboleth. His goes something like this. To those who say, let us cross over the Jordan into Gilead, into the kingdom of Christ and of God, to be secured of heaven, we profess Christ is our Savior. Paul says, say, Shibboleth. In other words, he says, present your way of life as one who does not practice unrepentant sexual immorality. And those professing Christians who habitually practice relations, sexual relations with other persons outside of the covenant of marriage, they say, Sibboleth. But those who have entered the kingdom of God through new birth, they are those who refuse to live a lifestyle of sexual immorality, of fornication, of adultery, of practicing homosexual relations with others. And then on the other hand, there are those who cannot say shibboleth. And because of that, it reveals that they are not of Gilead. 
that though they profess, I believe in Jesus, they are not of the kingdom of God. But the wrath of God awaits. That's what we're going to see. Now, two weeks ago, the last time we're here in Ephesians, I dealt only with verse 3, with sexual immorality. What is that? It only makes sense in the light of God's creation of human sexuality for the covenant of marriage and why it's so grievous. And okay, Remember that. But now, as you look at the text, verses 3 through 6 are one whole tight unit piece. And so, in verse 4 now, Paul adds to the activity of sexual immorality, he, he adds our way of speaking about sinful sex. What Paul is showing us here is that our mouths, our talk, show something. They either show that we understand the beauty and the holiness of God's purpose in human sexuality, and that's why we don't talk like the world. Or on the other hand, it shows that we don't get it with our heart and our hearts are evidenced by the way we speak about sinful sex. So, if you're there, let's look and begin again with verses 3 and 4. Paul writes, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, sinful sexual lust and covetousness, must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place. But instead let there be thanksgiving. So here in verse 4, ESV has these three words. That's how they translate it. Filthiness, foolish talk, crude joking. The New American translates them. Filthiness, silly talk, coarse jesting. The NIV translates them. Obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. So let's just quickly deal with these, these three words. The first word, translated filthiness here, in its context, which is around sexual activity, immoral sex, and then he just flows right into this, this word means something like disgraceful speech. That's why the NIV guys, and maybe some gals, decided we're going to go with obscenity here in English. Because it's referring to vulgar, to vile, or to what we use in English, and most languages have it, dirty. Sexually dirty speech. The New Testament scholar Tillman sums this word up this way. Paul probably had in mind not only obscene behavior, but also discussing or singing about ugly sexual behavior as a form of entertainment. 
Both the behavior itself and verbal descriptions of it were often present at the banquets of the wealthy in ancient Greco-Roman society. In other words, for this first word, just think about, some of you would understand what I'm talking about, think about the talk that goes on with young men in a baseball dugout about women. If you don't get that one and you follow politics, think about the release of the audio recording of Donald Trump about 13 years ago with another guy, a reporter, getting off the bus. That's what he is talking about. The second term means foolish or silly talk. Tillman, again, on this one, he writes, in its context here in Ephesians, where talk of sexual immorality and debauchery is in the air, this word may also carry connotations of the kind of nonsensical talk that emerges from people in attendance at parties or banquets where drunkenness and sexual immorality were common. And then the third term... It's a word that means witty. And there's an intelligence to people that can be very witty. Just They see connections all the time, right? And, and that can be a, not necessarily a negative thing. But, but here, the wittiness or the cleverness of a turn of a phrase or speech is clearly used by Paul here in a negative sense. Meaning, wit concerning sexual talk. Obscene. Coarse talk, but it is clever. Now, one commentator on Ephesians, Peter O'Brien, sums up these three words this way. All three terms refer to a dirty mind expressing itself in vulgar conversation. This kind of language must be avoided as utterly inappropriate among those whom God has set apart as holy. And so here's Paul, actual sexual immorality, having sex with anything or anybody outside of the covenant of marriage, and then connected to how we may talk about such things. Now, what is then really striking is the alternative Paul gives to sexual immorality or godless speech about sexual immorality. Not that, but... Well, let's just read, read it. Read verse 4 again. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but... But what? Instead this, let there be thanksgiving. Okay. Gosh, I hope when we have our quiet times and read the Bible, we don't just read the Bible. You think and you get troubled like, huh? That I hope that happens to you. It happens to me all the time. 
I just got to take a, a double take, a triple take, and 25 takes. Okay, wait a minute. But what are you saying? Why? Where do you get Thanksgiving all of a sudden? Paul? I mean, it would seem natural to say, not this, not sexual immorality, not crude talking, but instead purity of life and purity of speech. But he didn't. He said, instead of a nasty mouth and a nasty life. Thanksgiving. That's what he says. He says, instead, walk with God, in other words, in your communion with God. Walk with a constant heart of gratefulness to Him. That's His opposite of living in sexual immorality here. In a nasty mouth about sinful sex, which is belittling to the glory of God. That is a heart of thanksgiving. But why? So that's when we start to think, okay, how would that work? To be thankful as those who profess, Jesus is my Savior, God is my Father, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, means I'm thankful. I trust in God's sovereignty over every detail of my life. Therefore, in the midst of life, in the midst of everything, Romans chapter 8, in the midst of pain and whatever could come, I know God is out for my good through Jesus Christ. I'm thankful to Him. That's what thankfulness is. Now let's think about the other thing that Paul pits up against it. Sexual immorality. Sexual sinning, as opposed to thankfulness, is driven by covetousness. Now, this, i got to have that what God forbids me to have. To act out sexually. Outside of the covenant of marriage. See verse 3, it's how he said it. But sexual immorality or all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among or covetousness the drive he's saying this sin is the deep craving of discontentment which drives you to go against God's commands that's at the core of all our sin James talked about sin this way in James 1. Starting with verse 14. But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his or her own desire. And then, desire when it has conceived. It gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's at the core of all sin. It's at the core of sexual sin. 
And you think about the way James described that. What's missing when he starts to describe the internal workings of this? Thanksgiving is missing. The desires grow, it conceives, it gives birth, and then the action. And it is impossible to be thankful to God for His command, don't commit sexual immorality that you're committing right now. You cannot be thankful. You cannot be trusting Him that He actually commands you for your good. See, if, if a genuine heart of thanks to the Father is in us at any given moment and it's dominating our desires, then at that moment, a person will not give way to the discontentment at what God says you are not to have. Like sexual relations outside of marriage. This is right at the core of the essence of sin. This is what is modeled in the Garden of Eden. Eve lost any trust in God's goodness toward her. She lost, therefore, any thanksgiving every day to Him. Any gratitude or gratefulness to God. She lost it as she allowed Satan to get into her thoughts and to cause her to doubt God's goodness when God said, Do not eat this fruit. But it looks so delicious. It's good to the eyes. And and why is God telling me that? Satan put thoughts in her head. Because he doesn't want you to be as happy as he is. He knows you'll be like him. He's not out for your good. And so she began to think that God is withholding something that is for her ultimate good. And thus she thinks, He doesn't have my best interest at heart. And thus we're all sinners. Because her husband did the same thing. It is this attitude toward the Creator who has spoken. He's just a killjoy. He just doesn't want me to have fun and to be happy, really. I'm single. I have strong sexual desires. God doesn't really know what is best for me, ultimately. But I do. Sin is born and it acts out. See, you cannot feel that towards God. He's not out for my good. And be actually thankful to God for His commands against sexual immorality while you're acting out.
sexual immorality. Gratitude is what we feel when we believe God is out for our good. That His grace is powerful. Oh, please help me today battle that which is within me that wants to beckon like Eve. I can't trust you. That's called sin. That's called the Christian life. God's commandments to do and His prohibitions not to do for a Christian through Jesus Christ, they are His sweet love to us. Whether we're married and dissatisfied in it, or single and dissatisfied in it. Thanksgiving to God says over against my innate sinful desires. God's reign, Christ's rule over me is what is my greatest good and therefore I won't be driven to cultivate and to act out those desires that dishonor Him and His glory just for momentary fleeting pleasures of sin. It says I'll be thankful for the beauty of sex and marriage and of Christ's glory that sex in marriage points to. It says because I'm thankful to Him, I won't belittle God by fornication, by adultery, and by homosexual activity, or even by explicitly crude, filthy talk about sinful sex. I won't do it. And so that's why Paul says, but instead... Get your heart as you're battling alone with God to be truly, help me be thankful because it's so connected to and cannot be separated from faith. That I trust your word, your commands, your guidance to me. That's how Christians fight temptation. And now, secondly in the text, Christians do fight temptations because the stakes are really high. That's the next thing Paul goes on to say. Verses 5 and 6. For you may be... That 4 is connected to verses 3 and 4. Here's the reason this is so important. Do not live in sexual immorality. Let your, your tongue and your heart even express such things as the world loves to belittle. Marriage and sex. Don't do that. Here's the reason. For you may be sure of this, the following, that everyone who is <coughs> sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idol worshiper, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. 
Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. These are warnings for those who live out, who practice, who continue on in sexual immoralities. They are excluded from the kingdom of God. And the experience of God's wrath is what they are in the process of being headed toward. Now, in verse 5 here, Paul points back to the lifestyle of verse 3. He uses the same three words, but now he personalizes them like saying, this is the person who is habitually living this way. In verse 3, sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness. Verse 5, those who are sexually immoral, who are impure, and who are covetous. Verse 3, but sexual immorality... And all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. Verse 5, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. That's huge. Let me... Kingdom of God. What's that? Remember, Jesus comes onto the scene in his ministry, proclaiming, preaching, and bringing with his person the kingdom of God. In his earthly ministry, Jesus was establishing the presence of the kingdom, meaning the the rule, the reign of God invaded this universe spiritually. Not physically yet. Jesus talked about that. He would talk about, in, in, in one sentence, the kingdom is here. It's in your midst. It's in your presence. People are entering it right now. And He'd talk in the next sentence, it's not yet. In the future when I bring my kingdom. It is the New Testament theology understanding that comes through Jesus of the now, not yet. The kingdom is present. People are coming into it. They're being saved. The rule of the Messiah, of the Christ, is reigning spiritually over their lives as they walk through this present evil world. Remember how Jesus said it in John 3. Unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so in His ministry, and with His work on the cross, His death and His resurrection, Jesus established the presence, the powerful presence of the kingdom. Meaning, God's 
saving reign over those who enter that kingdom realm by the work of the Holy Spirit in new birth. And the marks of King Jesus upon those people is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. That's the evidence. That's the shibboleth. To say it differently, what does that mean? It means those who have been transformed from the heart, as Paul says earlier in Ephesians. He made us alive when we were dead. That they're justified once and for all. It's over Christ's righteousness. is theirs. And then there's an evidence of that truth. It's called the fruit of the Spirit. You can say it this way. It's called progressive sanctification. It's called a repentant life as they walk because sin will ever be beckoning at their doorstep and repentance will always be needed to turn from their sin. It's called obedience to God's commands, to His rule and to His reign over their lives. So when Paul says, you can be sure of this, baptized or not, ask Jesus into your heart or not, if you persistently live a sexually immoral, impure, covetous life, you will not in the future inherit the kingdom of God. All he is doing is saying the same thing Jesus kept saying in his ministry. You will know them by their fruit. Or or the way Jesus said this in Matthew 7. In the future, when I bring the consummation of the kingdom, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, Jesus, not every one of those people will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus. We were churched, we're religious. Did we not prophesy in your name? And cast out demons in your name? And do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And so Paul begins verse 5 here. Emphatically. For you may be certain. Maybe we're not in our day and age. 
Maybe there are a lot of churches and a lot of theologies in American evangelicalism that aren't sure of this. But Paul seems to be darn sure of this. For you may be sure of this. That professing Christians who live habitually like this, they're not repentant. He's sure that they are not savingly under Jesus' reign. The future inheritance of the kingdom of God, Paul seems to be sure, it is not for them. It's only for those who have been saved by grace through faith. That's who it's for. Genuine Christians do and can fall into these sins. But no genuine Christian can continue in such sins without remorse and repentance turning from the activities. Paul is not saying here, they entered the kingdom of God, they were in Christ They got saved. But then, they started sinning. And so God kicked them out of the kingdom. Now they lost their salvation. It's not what He's saying. He is saying that the persistent lifestyle choices of many, it gives evidence that they have never come into the rule and the reign of Christ as their Savior and Lord. It gives evidence that they cannot pronounce shibboleth. This is how the Apostle John talks about this in 1 John 3, 7-9. Little children, let It sounds so familiar to Paul here. (laughs) Let no one deceive you. Deceivers, preachers, ministers were all over the church in the first few decades. Let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous just as He is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason that Jesus came, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So, nobody who was born again that's what John, he just likes to say it this way, no one born of God makes a practice of sinning because God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born again or of God. You may be sure of this. And now, in light of this, 
the Apostle Paul knows that the church is, it is time, and it will be riddled with deceivers, with false teachers on this particular issue of sexual immorality. And so he emphasizes in verse 6, don't let, they're there. They're in our congregations. But don't let anyone deceive you about these things. Because this has to do with heaven and hell. That's how I read it. I just wonder if you agree. Let's read verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Why? For this reason. It is because of these things. Points right back to those living in, practicing sexual immorality, purity, and covetousness. Because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son of disobedience. Paul knew that there were many in his own day who butchered the gospel of Jesus Christ by saying, let us continue to sin so that grace may abound. And there are many today who say, accept Jesus in your heart, right? Then you're under grace. Therefore you're saved because you confess that you are saved by your belief in Jesus. And therefore, okay, now you should repent. Everyone should live holy. But, but wait a minute, Let, let's talk about heaven and hell and God's wrath and the kingdom of God and whether it's for you or not. They say, in that context, repentance or a changed life toward holiness have nothing to do with whether you will inherit the kingdom of God or not. People that teach that, like Joe LeMay, are teaching legalism. This is how it goes. And the implication of their doctrine is that even a Christian who, after whatever experience of religion and profession of faith in Christ, goes on to habitually live in adultery, or in fornication. The wrath of God has no bearing on them because they got baptized. They're in Christ. Even though they habitually, this is who they are, live this way, nevertheless, they will inherit the kingdom of Christ and of God. Paul begs to differ. And by such bad theology throughout the ages and clearly in our day, there are pastors and there are teachers who lure many people to their eternal ruin. Oh, let no one 
And he means no one. Trust me, Paul couldn't care less how many followers people have. He couldn't care less how many books they have written and if they've marketed their, their, their name. He doesn't care. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these lifestyles, the wrath of God comes upon the Son of disobedience. And that phrase there, sons of disobedience, it refers to those whose lives are characterized by their disobedience to God's moral commands. It's not referring to true believers who sin and repent. The sons of disobedience, it's the same thing Paul referred to back in chapter 2 when he was referring to believers. Remember before you became a believer. Remember before you were spiritually raised from the dead, born again, you were, like the rest, sons of disobedience. Let me just read that chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Paul wrote, In you, Christian, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once Walked, meaning lived your life. That was your life. Your life, who you were. You were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Let no one deceive you with empty. Words. He means false theologies, teachings on this subject. Don't let anyone deceive you who take sexual immoralities lightly in the name of grace. It is precisely because of these things, Paul says, sexual immoralities, that the wrath of God is coming on those who practice such things. Deceivers in our day, they will say, you guys accepted Jesus into your hearts. So really? Okay. See verse 6 there in Ephesians 5? Okay, don't get all bent out of shape because it's, it's really not for you. So don't take it, you know, too seriously. Go ahead and sleep tonight. It's just, it's not for you. That's what deceivers say. They'll say God in no way is giving a warning to church members to baptize professors of faith in Jesus Christ. God would never, ever do that. He would never motivate obedience by the threat of wrath. An exclusion from the future kingdom to those who profess Jesus is their Savior. And when those persons say that or imply that, they are deceivers. Don't let anyone deceive you. 
Because that is exactly what Paul does here. He's not writing to the non-churched. He's writing to the church. But now, okay, do not misconstrue how God works here. Don't misconstrue how He's working in believers' lives in verses 5 and 6. On how, in other words, He motivates us, His children who truly love Him. See, the Holy Spirit's purpose through the Apostle Paul here of warning about the wrath of God and the threat of missing out on the kingdom of Christ and of God. His whole point is not in order to debilitate true Christians and to pummel them into some kind of of horrific fear so that they will now perform some burdensome commandment like stop doing that. Not Paul's goal, nor the Holy Spirit's goal whatsoever. Actually, if that's your response, then it really is probably trying to call you to saving faith in the Gospel. If your response is... That is just horrifically burdensome. I get that from John. John talks about new birth in his first epistle. And he is clear that to those persons who are connected with Christ, his commandments are not burdensome in this way. Don't get me wrong. There's a battle against sin. But there's a non-burdensome battle against sin for believers. They want victory. They see how beautiful all of His promises are. And and that His commands, that's because He loves me. They see that. And that's their joy. And now they battle sin. So the Holy Spirit's point isn't, oh, I'm a believer, I, I just got to, oh my gosh, I wonder if I'm going to make it to heaven and get into the, to the kingdom. There, no, 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 no. Understand the gospel. We'll get there just in a second. The Spirit of Christ is in you, isn't He? If He is, he, He's bearing witness with the glory of Paul's text to you. See, the Holy Spirit's point, and Paul's point here, and the way he says it, is to just make crystal clear that obedience flows from true saving faith. That's all he's saying. That, that, that obe- I'm not going to live in sexual immorality flows from a renewed heart. That's a work of the Holy Spirit who changed you. And that's where your saving faith that justified you came from. He says, that's what saving faith is and that kind of faith To be saved, to be in the future kingdom, it is not optional. That's what Paul is saying. Because this conversion to Christ, this is what Paul thinks, okay? The conversion to Christ through new birth produces Jesus-adoring, word-saturated, joyful souls that are thankful. 
And they got this thing in them now they didn't used to have, and that is to love what God loves and to hate what God hates, like fornication and adultery and homosexual activity and on and on. So let me then say it this way too. Dear believer, oh, it's so, so crucial to understand the gospel. To understand the difference between justification and sanctification and how they are distinct, but they are not separated. So in other words, understand that the gospel of being justified, declared by God as perfectly righteous before Him. And all of your sins that deserved an eternal wrath have been totally removed all through somebody who is not you, outside of you, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the moment you came to saving faith, as Paul would say, and God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the gospel, of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Yeah, I see it. I believe. At that very moment, you are totally justified forever. And you'll never be unjustified. He saved you. Christian, you will make it. Do you love that gospel? Then that is what frees genuine Believers, that it's born again persons from legalistic fear in what we just read. It frees us. It's what it's meant to do. It frees you from any idea that this means now, okay, I guess, thanks Jesus for the gift, but now I got to go ahead and do my own works righteousness, work toward holiness, so that. In the end, I won't lose the salvation you gave me. You don't understand the gospel. No, 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 no. You're free of that. This warning that Paul gives is not about legalism. It's not about, oh, I guess I better do. According to that sermon, it's not what it is. Paul was very clear back in chapter 2 on this. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this, the grace and the faith, you didn't do that. That itself was a gift of God. It wasn't of your own doing. It was not a result of anything you did. Not a result of works. So that no one would boast. And so this is not about... I want to cross the Jordan. I want to change my citizenship from an Ephraimite to a Gileadite. No. It's not what it's about. You're one or the other. Say Shibboleth. That's the test of whether Ephesians 2, 8-9 is you. That's what Paul is saying. This warning... It's Paul's way of saying it is a matter of heaven and hell whether you are truly born again or not. He is saying 
Whether you are in the kingdom of God and will inherit the future kingdom at Jesus' second coming, with a heart of thankfulness and obedience in your life now, He says, that's the evidence of whether you know Him. Or rather, that He has known you. And so let's test ourselves to see if we are in the faith. One more time. Hear the word of the Lord. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among Christians. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude sexual joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be absolutely sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or practicing sexual impurity or who is sexually covetous, that is, he's an idolater, that person has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So let no one deceive you with empty theology. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And as we sing now, we're going to turn to the body and to the blood of Christ for all of us who were baptized. And that's where we see the gospel of justification by faith alone, through Christ alone who purchased it. That my walk, your walk as a believer, tomorrow, through all temptations, is secured by Him if He has secured you. Oh, what a glorious supper we are going to eat together. Father, thank You for such a Gospel We thank You that You sent Your Son to destroy the works of the devil. To destroy His hold over the darkness of our souls by shining the light of the Gospel of the glory of Your Son into our hearts that we would see and believe. And that is amazing that we're not left blinded by the God of this world. And that through that you are working in us that which is pleasing in your sight. Oh, feels so ever too slow. But you're doing it. (laughs) And we have nowhere and in nothing to boast except in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank You, Father. Amen.